If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up, turn them on. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 9. Now, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture today, and so I encourage you to follow along as best you can. If you can't keep up, uh, the Scriptures will be on the screen behind me, and so you can follow along that way as well. Let me start by asking you this question. Have you ever had somebody break a promise to you? How did that make you feel? How does it make you feel when someone promises something to you and then they don't fulfill their promise? Uh, Broken promises are everywhere these days. You see them in politics. We're getting ready to go into another election season. And so there'll be a lot of people running around making promises and then asking you to trust in them. And we've all had the experience of somebody telling us this is what we're going to do and then whenever they get elected, they don't fulfill their campaign promises. You see broken promises in family. Some of you have been deeply hurt through the course of your life because you met somebody that made a lot of promises to you while you were dating them, and then after you said, I do, everything changed at that point. Some of us as children, we had parents, we had grandparents make promises to us, and then those promises were not kept. And so we take into adult life a lot of scars that are within us because somewhere along the line, people made promises to you, but then they didn't keep your, their promises. I'm part of the self-esteem generation. Uh, my generation was there where they, they, they told us, hey, you can be anything you want to be. All you need to do is dream, and whatever you dream that you want to be, you can be it. So I decided that I wanted to be a professional basketball player. And then I quit growing at the age of 16. Everybody else kept growing taller than me. And I realized I couldn't jump that fast. And I I missed the basket more than I made it. And so I realized right away somebody lied to me. They told me I could be anything that I dreamed of being. All I needed to do was dream big. Don't let anybody steal your dreams. So I I wanted to be a basketball player and, and... They were lying to me. You remember whenever they told you, if you go to college, then you'll get a good job, and then you'll have financial security, and then you'll have lasting happiness. And so you did all that, and now you have a mortgage, a lot of student loan, and you worry constantly about being laid off. You remember whenever you were told that, that by being a rebel and speaking your mind and, and living in the moment that that'll help you to be free and you won't be tied down by anybody and you'll live a real free, radical lifestyle and now it's 10 years later and how'd that go? How'd it work out for you? Uh, we've all been disappointed in life. And sometimes whenever we get disappointed, we start building walls. We get hardened. We become cynical. We become sarcastic. Very few people get close to us. And it's very, very difficult for us to trust. And yet basic in the Christian story is us placing our trust in God. Basic to the Christian story are these promises that God has made to us and our trusting in God's promises. We're in this series called The Big Picture, and what we're doing is we're looking at those big picture moments in Scripture that will help us understand 
the major moments that unfold throughout Scripture and help us see the unity that is in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Much of the Old Testament revolves around some big promises that God made to people. These promises are often called covenants. These big covenant promises that God made to his people. And so today, I want us to journey through the Old Testament and look at some of these promises. Well, the first promise is found in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 11, where God made a promise to Noah. Now, in some ways, Noah is Adam 2.0. Because if you'll remember, we have the story of the great flood where God destroys the wickedness of the world and he saves Noah and his family. And he kind of begins the story of humanity again at that point. So this is right after the divine reboot of humanity. Right after the floodwaters recede, God comes to Noah and he says these words in verse 11 of chapter 9. I confirm my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by waters of a flood. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Now several takeaways from what God is saying to Noah here. The first is this. God's plan for humanity is not destruction. Destruction is not God's desire for us. Now, in the first eight chapters of Genesis, we have seen that sinfulness is a universal problem. And we have also seen that God is powerful enough, God is righteous enough, that if He desires to do something about the wickedness of the world... He is fully capable of acting in that way. The great flood testifies to that. But in God's promise to Noah, God says, my desire is for the redemption of the world, not the demolition of the world. And this promise that God made to Noah goes fast forward into the New Testament and we see it fulfilled in Christ. When we get to 2 Peter, Peter refers back to the story of the flood and back to God's promises to Noah. And here's what he says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 8. He says, Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promises, as some understand delay, but is patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. If you read the context of Peter, it is a direct reference back to the flood, connecting that to the cross. Peter says, God's desire for humanity, God's desire for you, is not that you'll perish. God is not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting all to come to repentance. Now you move on to Genesis chapter 12, and we come to a man by the name of Abram. His name was later changed to Abraham. If you're a historian, then Abraham would be one of the top ten most influential people to have ever lived. Three different major world religions see Abraham as a patriarch. In Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, Abraham is held in high esteem. Well, in Genesis chapter 12, 
and verse 1, the Lord makes a promise to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That was the command in Abram. You're supposed to leave home. You're supposed to follow me. Okay, God, where am I supposed to go? I'll show you that later. Just follow me. Well, then in verse 2, God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So again, we begin to see the plan of God unfolding. He makes this promise to one man, Abraham. And out of this one man would evolve this great nation, Israel. And from Israel, the Christ, Jesus, would come. And through that, there would be a global blessing that occurs to all people. The promise made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 points to the cross, points to the resurrection, it points to Jesus. Because just like in Abraham, there was one man, in Jesus there is one man who would die for all. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he would establish the church, and the church would take the gospel into all the world. We continue forward in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 19. And we have a man by the name of Moses. Now you want to talk about a liberator. You want to talk about a person that led others out of bondage and oppression. That was this great man, Moses. Moses led approximately 2 million people out of slavery. He's one of the greatest liberators in human history. Now this takes place after the swarms of locusts. This takes place after one more night with the frogs. This takes place after the death angel, after the mass exodus from Egypt, the chasing by Pharaoh's army, and the crossing of the Red Sea. God comes to Moses, and he says, Moses, I want to have a private meeting with you. And so he calls him up to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God makes a promise, a covenant with Moses. In Exodus 19 and verse 5, God says, Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. So God says to Moses, If you listen to me, if you keep my commandments, you will be my people. You will be my children. I will love you in a special way. You will belong to me. You are mine. Again, the promise made to Moses points to Jesus. Because whenever we trust in Jesus, we are God's. We belong to him. We are his children. We belong to him for all eternity. That is a promise that God has made to us. It is a promise that is affirmed over and over and over again in the New Testament. I think of Romans chapter 8 and verse 35, which begins with this pointed question, who can separate you from the love of God? Think about that for a second. What can separate you from the love of God? What can you do? Where can you go where God says, okay, I no longer love you. You are no longer mine. You are separated from me. The Bible continues to say, can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
In verse 38, he says, For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whenever you believe in Christ, when you taste of the grace of God and you are His child, you are in Christ Jesus. You are God's child. You belong to Him. And the Bible says nothing is going to separate you from the love of God. Understand this. Hear this well. Your salvation is not secured by your ability to keep your promises to God. Your salvation is secured by God's ability to keep His promises to you. And God is faithful to keep His promises. He calls you to faith. He calls you to trust in His grace. The whole point of the Mosaic Law was to show us that we fall short of God's standard of righteousness and are in need of the grace of God through the cross. And God extends to us the promise of grace and calls us to faith. And he says, whenever you're mine, you're mine forever. Nothing's going to separate you from my love. We continue on to Second Samuel. And we come to a man by the name of David, the greatest king Israel ever had. Now, David was a complex man. David was a gallant gallant warrior. He could kill you with his right hand while writing poetry with the left hand and playing the harp with his feet. I mean, David was just a complex individual. Spiritually, the Bible says that he pursued God's own heart. He desired to, to, be, uh, to have his life flow with the heart of God. And at the same time that he was pursuing the heart of God, he was so human. And you find him struggling with his own earthly lust. David was the kind of young man who was a mother's dream and a counselor's nightmare. He was a complex individual. Well, David had a, a grand plan. He had achieved much in his life, and so now he wanted to build a great temple to God. He wanted to build a place where people from all around the world could come and worship God, and he wanted to build a place that was ornate and would really speak to the majesty and greatness of God. And so he had done fundraising, he had gathered the resources, he was ready to go and start building this great temple to God, and then God throws him this major curveball. God says, David, you're not the one that's going to build the temple. That's not my plan. I know that's your expectation. I know that's what you think you're supposed to do, but that's not my plan. I'm God and I have different ideas. But then God makes a promise to David. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Now, what do you think David envisioned when God said, your house and your throne will last forever? I think David must have thought more power, more money, more fame. After all, in that period of time, 
for a king, one, one of the things that caused them the most anxiety was thinking about the fact that their, their grandchildren and children would be killed and, and would not reign on the throne as well. And so God makes this promise to David, hey, your family is going to reign forever. I don't think David ever envisioned that the fulfillment of that promise would be found centuries later in a manger at Bethlehem. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, the angel tells Mary, Do not be afraid, because you have found favor with God. And then the angel says, Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God, and now notice this part in verse 32, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. So there's a direct connection that's made to the birth of Jesus, to the promise that was made to David that his family would reign for forever and forever. Now David could have never seen exactly how God was going to fulfill that promise. David thought his destiny was to build the great temple. David thought his destiny was to be an earthly king, and yet God... uh, fulfilled his promise, but in a way that was different than anything that David could have ever envisioned. The king would be Jesus, and his kingdom would not necessarily be an earthly kingdom, but his kingdom would be the kingdom of the heart. Now, fast forward in the story. A beaten, bound Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, the governor there in Judea. And Pilate asked him this question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I have come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus never denied that he was indeed a king, but what he denied was that he was going to establish his earthly kingdom there within Rome. Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. My kingdom's of the heart. I'm the king of truth. I'm the one that reveals right from wrong and reveals righteousness from unrighteousness. You see, one of the most distinctive things about Jesus is that he never called us simply to embrace his teachings. Jesus called us to embrace him. All other major world religions you achieve by following the teachings. In Christianity, you begin by embracing the Savior. And it is from the Savior that the teachings begin to make sense and find power. When you embrace the Savior, a transformation occurs that goes beyond behavior modification. When you embrace the Savior, a heart transformation occurs that changes you from the inside out. 
Well, spring break started a little bit rough for us in our household. On Monday morning, we said goodbye to uh, a faithful dog, a Labrador named Addie, that we had had for 12 years. She was almost 13 years old, and she just reached the end of, of the journey. And so uh, that's tough. I mean, it stinks. You, you've probably been there before when you say goodbye to a, a dog that's sweet and faithful, and I'll get teary-eyed if I keep talking about it. But uh, it's even harder when you're dad. Because now it's not you just saying goodbye to the dog. Now you're having to try to explain life and death to your kids. And so Karis, my seven-year-old, she asked this question. She says, I prayed that God would help Addie. So why didn't he answer our prayer? Now when your seven-year-old asks that kind of question, what you do is you call the pastor. (laughs) And you say, here's what they said, what do I say? Well, I'm up the creek on that one. Thankfully, I have Stacy. So I asked, you know, Stacy handled it. And she explained to Karis that, you know, we ask God for what we want. And it's okay to bring the desires of our heart to God. Ask Him for healing. Ask Him for things. But ultimately, we're supposed to come to God thanking Him for what He's given us and trusting Him to do what's best. And that sometimes... God answers our prayers in ways that, that we didn't really think of. And I thought of Jeremiah the prophet. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet was living in exile. His nation had been overthrown. And he was irritated. He was frustrated. And he was like, God, why would this happen? And he had his charis moment, like my daughter had. Lord, why would you allow this? Why would you put us in this situation? And God made a promise to him in Jeremiah 31, 31. God says, look, the days are coming, and this is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then in verse 33, he says, I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. In verse 34, he says, I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. So God tells Jeremiah, yes, things have not gone according to your script. Yes, you are in exile, but understand that I am leading you to a new covenant, and in Christ there will come that day where your hearts will be transformed, and I will give you more than you ever envisioned because I will give you a new heart, and I will bring to you through Christ the forgiveness of your sins. And all these expectations that you bring to me, all these desires that you bring to me, a lot of times they are far too small compared to what I really desire to do. I've, I've found over the years that a lot of people have these charis moments. By charis moment, what I'm talking about is it's a moment when God's plan does not meet your expectation. And for a lot of people, when that charis moment happens, you pull back, you clench the fist, And you reject God, and you turn to your own way. 
When Charis was born, we, we named her that because there's a Greek word. The Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament is charis. It, it means grace. And so we, we liked that concept and we thought it was a pretty name. And so we named our daughter Charis because to us she, she was an act of God's grace. And I've seen over the years as well that when others have their Charis moment, instead of rejecting God, they embrace His grace. And instead of pushing away from God and clenching the fist, they open the hand and they say, God, I'm going to trust you now even though I don't understand. I'm going to trust in your promises. Now here's what I want you to take away from this. Here's what I want for you today. I want you to realize that God, in His grace, promises you a new heart that can trust Him even whenever His plan differs from your expectations. That one of the promises of grace is a faith that endures a trust in God that that continues even when life is very difficult or confusing. I want you to realize that God, in His grace, promises you and promises me forgiveness for our past. He promises us purpose and His presence in the challenges of today. And He promises us a hope that lasts forever. The hope that God promises us is fundamentally different than what most of us consider to be hope. For most of us, whenever we say, I hope tomorrow is better than today, it's just wishful thinking. Sometimes it's even weak thinking. I can't do anything about it, but I hope it's better. The hope that God promises us, though, is anchored in His promises, which endure today and forever. And it's a hope of eternity with Him. God, in His grace, calls you to a place of trust. God calls you to trust in Him. And as we've seen through this journey through the Old Testament, God is always faithful to keep His promises. And because God is faithful to keep His promises, He is totally trustworthy for our faith. Now that's hard. Because if you go back to the beginning of the message, a lot of you have been lied to over the years. You've had people break promises. You've had people hurt you. You have scars. And because of that, you've built walls. You've become cynical, sarcastic. It's difficult to get to know you. Yet at the basic foundation of Christianity is putting the totality of yourself in God's care and trusting in Him. Trusting in the God that has shown from Genesis to today and will show for all eternity that He is completely trustworthy. And the call of the Christian is to place your faith and your trust in God even when you don't understand. And when you have those careless moments and you're tempted to push away and react in anger instead of pushing away, you push through and you embrace the grace of God realizing that even though you don't understand it all, you trust in your God, and He's been faithful through it all and will continue to be faithful in the days ahead.
Trust in God. He's trustworthy. That's my simple message for you today. Would you stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment. The band's going to come forward and they're going to lead us in a hymn. If I can pray with you today, I'll be here at the front. If today is a day where you need to trust in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, please come see me. I would love to pray with you and talk with you about that. Talk to somebody, somebody that you know um, walks with the Lord. Let them know where you are. Because if you're at that point of trusting in Christ and becoming a Christian, that is one of the greatest, if it's the greatest moment in your life. And we want to walk that journey with you. If there's anything that I can pray with you about, encourage you in, I'm here at the front. It's always my honor to pray with you and help you. Maybe you want to pray with somebody, pray there at your seat. Others will sing the song with the band. Let's make this a time of worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. And we thank you, Lord, for your promises. And we thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. And we pray, Lord, that we will not rebel against you, but instead may we trust you. And may we realize that even though you are God and we are not, and that sometimes you make decisions that that alter our expectations, that you are good in all ways. And we can trust in you. We thank you, Father, that as we look back on the pages of Scripture that we see through Noah and Abraham, Moses and David, that you are faithful and we see that your promises always drive us to the cross and drive us to Christ and the forgiveness, the purpose and the hope that are found in him. So help us, Lord, to respond to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.